the Go podcast is brought to you by The Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.thesanctuarychurch.com. My name is Pastor Marty Walker. I am so glad to be with you. Uh, we're continuing this series, and if you've missed any of the conversation, you don't need to. You can go to Facebook, you can go to YouTube, you can go to our website, thesanctuarychurch.com, and you can catch up on what we've been talking about. So there's, there's several back teachings now. This is week number four, and this morning, I want to share with you the way of the exile, the way of the exile. That's the teaching title for this morning, the way of the exile, and it's learning how to live faithfully together. How do we do this thing together? Before I go there, though, I want to help us see the importance of small group relationships. That's a big one, and I realize that many people, our tendency is to stay away from small groups. We either like to stay into the large groups or isolate and be by ourselves. It's very, this, this little small group dynamic is challenging. See, over here, there's no challenge because in a large group, I can just kind of blend in disappear. And over here, when I'm off in the woods with God, and I feel God in the trees and the rocks and the right, all by ourselves, that's easy too, because there's no challenge because there's no other people there. Here, I get lost in the crowd. Here, I don't have to deal with other people. Both scenarios. We like those, but this is what I want to talk to you a little bit about this morning, is that small group. See, because when we're not in small groups, we miss out on what I like to call the Esther moments in life, the Esther moments. Uh, and I think, well, what are you talking about? Wait, 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 wait Esther moments. What's that? Well, let me review with you the captivity of Esther. Esther was one of uh, just two books. In fact, Esther was not her real name. Do you know what her real name was? And by the way, this is the second book of the Bible that does not have God in it, the name God in it. If you know the answer to either of those, what is Esther's real name? And what is the other book of the Bible that doesn't have the name of God in it? You've got 10 seconds to put it on the live stream. Right here, right now. Because if you take more than 10 seconds, you probably looked it up, right? So, uh, so I've got a coffee gift card or something. I'll, I'll give you some sort of treat. Can you tell me Esther's real name? And what is the other book of the Bible? Esther does not have the name of God in it. What's the other book that doesn't? So we'll keep going here. Okay, a little Bible trivia thing moment there. Okay. This narrative is an amazing narrative. The Esther narrative, it's all structured around banquets. In fact, just in this book alone, the word banquet or feast shows up 20 times. And there's only 24 times throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible. So it's huge in this particular book. And, and it's cool because it actually gives us the origin of the Feast of Purim, which took place, again, because of what happened here with Esther. Uh, these 10 chapters in the book of Esther reveal the reversal of destiny you catch that, the reversal of destiny through these unexpected twists and turns, it would make a great movie script, okay? This, because you're like, wait, what? What just happened? Wait, they, no, I thought that they were, right? Uh, let's review this situation that I really don't have time to unpack this morning or elaborate on. So first, let's, let's just get this. Esther uh, is part of the exiled remnant of Judah, okay? So she comes from Judah, and she has providentially become queen of Persia. So she's from Judah, but becomes queen of Persia. And this guy named Haman, who is one of the king's advisors, he hates the exiled Jews. He can't stand them. And he's convinced the king, 
Esther's new husband, right? She just got married to the king, right? He's convinced the king that he needs to allow all the people of Persia to kill off any of the Jews that they don't like. And that seems cool to him, not knowing that the queen is also a Jew. Well, Mordecai, who raised his cousin, did, did, anybody, get that, did anybody get the answer to that? Martha Chang in Panama got Hadassah? What are that? What? In Panama, our live stream in Panama, she got it. So how do we get you? We're going to have to get you something in Panama, right? We're gonna, we're, we'll get you something. I'll get you something down there. Did anybody get the second book of the Bible without the name of God? Anybody? Not yet. Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon and the book of Esther, neither of them mention God. I don't know why, but they are included in our Bible. Okay, well, Hadassah is her name, and this guy Mordecai has raised his cousin Hadassah, also known as Esther, as his own, as his daughter. And, and, and well, Mordecai finds out about this plot that Haman's got going on. Okay, Haman says, let's kill off all the Jews. Mordecai goes, whoa, man. And he approaches Esther, and he gives her this message. He says, why do you think you're queen? You know, it's probably because you could save us like right now. Well, this is the definition of an Esther moment. This is your first blank as well. Fill this in, please. An Esther moment is when you are positioned in such a place in time that you are the only one who can do something about a specific situation, a circumstance that's going on around. You're the one who has to do something. You know what that's called? It's when you're in the gas station filling your tank and nobody else is in the gas station and somebody comes up and says, can I get a couple bucks for gas? That means it's you, right? Well, here's what happens. Mordecai, right? Everyone around you also knows that too. Everybody knows it. Everybody, the people that are with you go, you're the one who I'm looking to uh, change the situation here, right? Well, Mordecai's solution is that Esther would go to King Xerxes and go to him and say, hey, listen, uh, I, I, I need you to change a little something that's going on. But the problem is she can't go to him. Because it's, uh, it's against tradition there, right? It, the only way she gets to go to him is if he invites her in. And because if you show up unannounced, you're, it's over. You're dead, right? Even as queen, you don't mess with this rule. In fact, the previous queen, her name was Vashti, she was asked to come see the king, and she said no. And so she was banished for life, exiled. She was banished for life. You did not show up when I asked you to show up. I don't ever want to see your face again, which is why Esther got made queen. Okay, well, Esther responds to Mordecai in this way. Here's what I want to do. You get everybody to fast and pray, and I'll approach the king. And if I die, listen to what she says. If I die, I die. Whew. There is a connection that I want to make this morning before I get into this teaching between small groups uh, and that's happening in community groups. We talk about those all the time. It's happening in growth groups where a couple of people, two or three people are getting together to just talk about life and reason together. N not, not catching up, but keeping up. There's uncommon groups where men, just men are getting together, going over Bible studies. The women have Bible studies in right now media and you version Bible studies that are going on. In fact, listen, these are the moments, these, these Esther moments that I'm talking about happen in small groups. 
By the way, if you do not have a subscription to Right Now Media, can I encourage you? I'm going to pull up a slide for you. Right Now Media, you can get a free subscription. Go to sanctuarychurch.com slash right now media. Get a free subscription to tens of thousands. I am not exaggerating. Tens of thousands of amazing Bible studies. There is no excuse for remaining ignorant of the Bible. And what you're going to get from me on a Sunday morning will not equip you for all of life. I can only get you there till probably Sunday afternoon, maybe. Okay. So get your right now media subscription. I want you to get that. Uh, And I want everybody to hear this in regards to what we're talking about this morning. God says this, we are all essential personnel in the kingdom. Please know that in regards to this Esther moment thing, beloved, we are all essential somewhere. We are all able to do something that only we can do. And that is most most often experienced in small groups. And fill this in, would you please? There are these moments that God intends to bring a blessing to a group of people that can only be brought through you as the individual. These moments, God gave each of us natural gifts and skills and they get supercharged by his Holy Spirit. And these Esther moments or Mordecai moments, in case you guys are feeling any kind of left out there, right? these, these moments are, are, are what we're gonna miss. Here's what we're gonna miss. If, if we don't get it, we, we miss how God channels. See, God channels his blessing. He says, I, watch this, I'm gonna funnel blessing to you through this person. Watch this, I'm gonna funnel blessing through this person to this person through you. See, and this is the way God designed the kingdom of God to function. His kingdom works like this. I'm blessing this person through this person and this person through this person and you through these people and them through you. This is the way the kingdom of God functions. Secondly, I think we're gonna miss the spiritual gifts that get discovered when you're in small group relationships. Like, wow, I I didn't know that I had that gift. Someone says, gosh, you're so hospitable. Do you have a gift of hospitality? I'm like, I I don't know, do I? (laughs) Well, apparently you do. Somebody's pointing it out. And so we discover a lot of the spiritual gifts in these circles of relationships that can't be discovered when we're off by ourselves. Well, you know, my relationship is between me and God and it's a private thing. It may be personal, but it's not private. The, the scriptures are very clear about that. So I want to encourage us each week, and I, I throw these videos at the end of our times together, to get into conversations in community. Get into conversations with other people. Start talking about, wow, I never thought of Esther like that. Wow, I never thought of Daniel like that. I never thought of Jeremiah like that. In, in, these, in this series, these conversations are so important. Well, I want to move into today's lesson. So that, that was just the setup. That was my pre-ramble right there. So, okay. I, I want to get into today's lesson because I want us to learn how to navigate. And I use that word because I want you to get it. How do I navigate this world as an exile? I have been pushing forward for the last three weeks that we are exiles, We have been left here. First, we were exiled from Eden, right? All of humanity was exiled from a place in not just proximity, but intimate proximity with God. And now we're all exiled here on the planet. But also, we're exiled in a foreign land. This this home is not my home, even though this is where I was born, even though this is where I was raised. This is all I've ever known. But I read differently. I say, oh, this isn't my home. One of the most difficult issues, and you can fill this out, this is one of your blanks, that face Christians of every culture, any culture and every culture, at any time, throughout time, 
is their interaction with the culture that they're living in. It's very difficult how to figure, how do I live in this culture? I mean, as God's people, are we supposed to support the culture? Are we supposed to resist the culture? Are we supposed to participate in the governing power structures of the day? What do I do here? How do I function if I'm living in what I'm proposing is Babylon? How do I live here? Should followers of Jesus endorse a political movement, even if it's a religious political movement? Is that what we're supposed to be doing? What's the difference between our loyalty to the kingdom and our allegiance to the nation? For us as American citizens, we, well, you know, I pledge allegiance to the flag, the United States of America, right? But, but what's my loyalty to God's kingdom? Religion and politics are super highly charged. You better watch what you're saying, right? And so, you know, those are the two things you do not bring up. Isn't that wild? We, we've been sequestered. That's, that's what tells you you're living in Babylon. Don't talk about religion. Don't talk about politics because politics is untouchable and religion is untouchable. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians are ignorant of what the word has to offer, the wisdom that the Bible has to offer so that we can navigate this. This is a great, this is a great map. How do I make my way through this world that we're living in? I, again, I say ignorant because the lessons often aren't in the form of direct commands. Make sure you do this. It's more in the form of narrative, which is, why, which is what we've been doing. We've been going over Jeremiah and looking at these narratives, these storylines of, wow, look at how they lived out being exiles. The biblical picture of humanity's home as I mentioned, is Eden. And it's where we're supposed to steward God's world, right? We have his world in front of us and there's this partnership with the creator. He's like, hey, this is the garden. It's all yours. You can have that and you can have that and you can have that. Just don't touch that. And for whatever reason, it's still in me. I just want that, right? And it all sounds really awesome. You're reading that, that first Genesis 1, 2. You're like, okay, this is a cool beginning. I like where this is going, But then humanity, and if I was in the garden, it would have been me, rebels and creates kingdoms that all of a sudden elevate their own wisdom and values. This is the way I think we should function. This is the way I think we should do things. And then we demand allegiance from other people. You need to think like I think. You need to function like I function. You need to talk like I talk. In the Bible, the key image that symbolizes all of that is found in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 1 and 2 is Eden, but by chapter 11, they have built a place called Babylon. Essentially, it was the Tower of Babel. You know the story. You may have heard the story. If you haven't read about it, read how creation fell apart. When it was all together, it all fell apart. And Abraham, very quickly, is actually from this part of the world, his place called Ur of the Chaldeans, right? He comes from Babylon. And God says, I want you to leave this place. I know this is all you've ever known. I know this is the home that you've known, but I want you to leave this place and I want you to go to a land I'm gonna show you. It's gonna be a land flowing with milk and honey. It's what's called the Fertile Crescent. It's on the Mediterranean Sea called Israel. It wasn't Israel yet, but Abraham was told to go here, right? The problem is that through years of disobedience, uh, just rebellion, all of Abraham's descendants end up back in Babylon, the very place Abraham was told to leave to go to a promised land, and through obedience you get to possess this land. Well, 
through disobedience, you get thrown out of this land. And they end up right back in Babylon. It's the central location of so many of the Old Testament books. The prophetic books were being written. Many of the prophets were being written during the time of exile. They're saying, hey, listen, the reason you're there is because of this. This is how long you're going to stay. This is the way you need to act while you're there. And so all of these prophetic books are giving us direction. And, it, and are we, again, is it direction for resistance or direction for, may I even say, submission? Should they withdraw into a holy huddle? It's just us, and we're here in a foreign land, so let's stay together and not let anybody else into our group. Or are we to rise up in protest, in rebellion to our oppressors? Let's, let's, let's fight back. How can they live? And I believe this is now for us, so fill this in, would you please? How are we supposed to live in this culture, in Babylon's culture, and be agents of blessing. See, Jeremiah and Daniel both deal with this and bring a surprising perspective, telling us stories of Israelites who are both loyal and subversive to Babylon. They're writing these books and they're saying, hey, hey, here's what it looks like to live as an exile. Here's the instructions from God himself. Both of these prophets encouraged offering the best effort toward the peace of Babylon, the well-being of Babylon, but also were critical and resisted its idolatry and its power structures. Jesus, I believe, calls us to respond the same way today. In John 17, he, he forms it this way. Be sure you're in the world, catch this, but not of the world. John chapter 17, please do yourself a favor this week and just read that one chapter. It's Jesus' final instructions to his followers, listen to this, and those who will eventually follow him, which is you and me. And he says, listen, you gotta be in the world, but you can't be of the world. Do you hear this? Submission, subversiveness. It's, it's kind of, there is this little point of, I can't fall in line with that. I have to stay aligned to something else. When we turn to the New Testament, we find Jesus adopting all the same kind of structure that Daniel and Jeremiah were calling people to. The power structures at the time in the Old Testament, again, were Babylon and Assyria, but now it's the religious structure of the Pharisees and the ruling structure, the government structure of the Roman oppressors. They now control all of Israel and they were both the Babylon of his day bringing this oppression. And so he taught his disciples this approach. That's why Peter calls the followers of Jesus, Jesus sojourners, exiles, aliens. Look at the way he says this in 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Check out this scripture. 1 Peter 1, chapter 1. Peter's talking and he says this. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus, one that is set apart for a purpose, right? He says, I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as, there's the word, foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, right? He says this, and Peter talks about how Christians are to relate to the governing powers of their day. He describes this, he goes on to describe this in, in a way of life that is similar to the stories, again, of Jeremiah and Daniel and of Jesus. Look what he says in chapter two, verses 13 through 15. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority. 
whether the king is the head of state or the officials that he's appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that you that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. See, while we're seeking peace and offering our best efforts to the communities in which we live, our ultimate allegiance is not to the government. It's to the kingdom. We, we, are, uh, we, bring, our, we bring our loyalty to the kingdom. And that Anything that rises up, please understand, because it's a difficult one. Anything that rises up and says, you need to be loyal to this first, right? Toward anything, anyone, that the values are above the kingdom, God's kingdom. He says, you ought to stay away from that. Soon, soon, as, I, soon as I use these words, man, I have to, I know there's a problem inside of me. There's something wrong. I have to see that movie. I have to go to this concert. I have to. I realize, woo, I have to be careful when I use have to. There is this loyalty and subversion that gets energized by our hope that one day King Jesus is going to return and replace our respective Babylons with his eternal kingdom. That was his promise. And the Bible doesn't give a, a simple answer to this complex set of issues because it's very difficult depending on where you live, even, even here in the United States. As diverse as, for instance, uh, accents that people have. You have, you know, Los Angeles, we don't have any accents, but the rest of the country, wow, really weird, right? Down south, you got these drawls. In New York, right? See, everybody, everybody else has accents. We don't have them. Right, but so here's what happens: as diverse as the accents are, is diverse as the Babylons that people are living in. The stuff that people suffer with or under in the Midwest and in the East are different from the West Coast. I was talking with a pastor once, and I said, "Man, it's really hard because in California, people will get to church once or twice a month, you know, and it's like, well, you know, I got other things going on, but you know, I can make it once or twice a month." And this pastor said to me, he was from the Midwest. He said, "Man." I would, be, I would love to have that kind of difficulty. My people are in church every Sunday, but they don't want to be. At least your people want to show up twice a month. I was like, whoa. I mean, it was, it was like mind-blowing. He goes, I'm in, the, I'm in the Bible Belt, and people go to church because they have to go to church, but they don't want to be there. I thought, wow, that, that's a totally different struggle, but it's the same church. We are the church, the beloved of God, struggling in different ways depending on where we're at. Jesus wants to resolve all of that with his kingdom. In the year 587, this is what we've been going through. 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem has been laid siege, right? It's attacked by the Babylonian empire and they burn down the temple. They plunder everything and the city is burned to a total heap. They've destroyed all of Israel. Thousands of Israelites are taken from their home and they're relocated 600 miles east in a place called Babylon. And they, they became exiles and captives. And that's the stuff, those are the people, the remnant that we're focused on in this series. So now their faith and their beliefs are functioning in a minority position. It's like, I, I know that what I believe isn't what you believe. And I, I understand that what I feel and, and think about and my traditions are different than your traditions. And so I have a different mindset. 
Well, that is a very small group of people. And some of the Israelites chose to resist Babylon. They chose to rise up and revolt. And some chose to withdraw. Others give in to the culture of Babylon, accepting the Babylonian way of life. They accept their, these new gods, these Babylonian, well, those are my gods, I guess, right? We, we get into that a little bit today. You might think that those are the only two options you have, either to resist or to give in. But Jeremiah 29 tells them to do something totally different and totally surprising, which by the way, we went over in our second week. If you didn't get to hear about that, would you please go to the second week? It was called Living for the Promised Land. And and you can look that up and you watch that teaching. But essentially, Jeremiah says this, settle in, build houses, plant gardens, grow families. And then he says, I want you to seek the well-being of Babylon and pray for its peace. Pray to the Lord, pray to your God, Israel, on behalf of this land that has oppressed you. This is the third way. This is the way of the exile. It's not a compromise or a revolt, but what does it look like? There's a whole book in the Bible that explores this question really clearly, and it's the book of Daniel. Daniel lays it all out to us. Daniel's one of the Israelites that's been taken into Babylonian captivity, And because Daniel's had a royal heritage and a royal education, he was recruited, along with some other guys, to work in the high court in Babylon. They took the educated, the good-looking, the young and strong, like us. Okay, And, uh, And so they take him into the court of Babylon. And listen, now you're thinking, so he's working for the enemy? Wouldn't that be the compromise? No, no, no. There's a plan. And I know you're thinking, oh, I get it. The plan's to be an insider and take them down from the inside. That's the way Hollywood would write this script, but Hollywood isn't writing this script. God wrote this, and he says, go ahead, work for them, and I'm gonna use you. Instead, they took Jeremiah's advice, and they chose the third way. They are going to serve the king of Babylon, and they're gonna seek Babylon's well-being. And I know the question is, but, By doing so, aren't they just giving up their heritage? Aren't they just turning it all over and say, well, this isn't that important? On the surface, it kind of seems that way, but but that's not what's happening. And as you read Daniel chapter one, two, and three, the story focuses on several moments where lines are constantly being drawn. Listen, my heritage doesn't allow me to do that. I know what you're asking me to do, and I want to honor what you're asking me to do, but I can't do that. And they are choosing faithfulness to God while resisting the influence of Babylon. But this is what you need to do. You need to eat the food from the king's table that's been sacrificed to foreign idols. Uh, We're not allowed to eat Cheetos hot fries, right? Uh, We can't do that, right? That's junk food to us. We're not allowed to do that kind of a thing. And, And we're not allowed to drink that stuff. So how about we do this? How about we just test us? Go ahead, you can test us. Just let us eat vegetables and drink water. And, and if we're not as healthy as everybody else is, that by the end of that 10 days, you, you let us know and we'll talk, we'll have another conversation. That's where the, the, the phrase and the, the movement, the Daniel fast, comes right out of Daniel. Now there, in this book, in the book of Daniel, there are several specific names uh, that I want to focus in on. And I, and I know I've done this teaching as a, a solo, but I want to kind of review it this morning. And they're names that have the name of God in their name. 
in Hebrew, there are several specific names of God that once you write them, listen to this, they're not allowed to be erased. They, they see them, the Jews see them as so holy, you can't even just erase them. You just have to keep moving on once you've written down that name because it's so holy. And it's the name of Yahweh, Elohim, Eloah, Eloi, El Shaddai, Adonai. These are all the Hebrew names that God was known by to his people. The letter A-I, like in Haggai, those letters, that's the name of God. The letters A-H, like in Nehemiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, A-H, that's the name of God. E-L, those letters is the name of God, like in Samuel, Ezekiel, Daniel, that's the name of God in their names. And so these were important names because, listen, their heritage was baked into them. I'm I'm functioning under the name of God. Well, the Babylonians had to take care of this. So I want you to see how it happens. Here's the four guys that are in the book of Daniel. Check this out. The first one is Daniel. Daniel. His name literally means God is my judge. But the Babylonians changed it to Belshazzar. Belteshazzar. May Bel protect his life. Belshazzar was one of the kings that's coming up in this book. Belteshazzar, Belteshazzar, and Bel is one of the Babylonian gods. Here's another guy, Hananiah, our second. Hananiah, his name means God is gracious. They changed his name to Shadrach, which was by the command of Aku, another one of the Babylonian gods, Aku. Our third character is Mishael. See the E-L? Who is what God is? Who is what God is? They changed it. Listen to how, look how right out of there. Shock is one of the Babylonian gods. Who is what Shock is? We're going to name him Mishak. The, our last character is a guy named Azariah. See the A-H? Means God has helped. They changed it to Abednego. Servant of Nego, again, one of the Babylonian gods. These four guys are the, are the character, the focus of these four guys, and specifically in Daniel 1, 2, and 3, it's about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and then the rest of Daniel really focuses on the time that Daniel spent there. But I want you to understand something, and fill this in, this is the last of your blanks here on this section. These name changes were an attempt at loyalty changes because they were taking the name of the Israelite God out of their name and putting in the names of the Babylonian gods. In a word, assimilation. I know you thought that was just for Star Trek and the Borg, but it was happening here in Babylon. They had their names changed as a way of integrating them into the Babylonian culture. Because now it's a reminder every day that they call them Hananiah. No, 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 no more Hananiah. Now we're going to call you something else. We're going to call you, we're going to call you Shadrach. So when I call you, I'm calling in you, not the God of the Israelites anymore. I'm calling in you one of the gods of the Babylonians. I'm not going to name you Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. In fact, most people tell the story of the fiery furnace and they tell the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Wait, but wasn't it the God of the Israelites who saved them from the fiery furnace? So shouldn't we name them? In fact, my Bible, I have, I have all, every time that it says that, I've literally crossed them out in my Bible and just put A-M-L. 
A, right, H. I just changed their names. I could go, because that's who served them. That's who saved them from the fiery furnace. Beloved, they were, they were being transformed in the way they were thinking. When someone said, Meshach, they go, oh, he's talking to me. And something happened, not Mishael. And that's what our culture wants to do to us. Here's the way they do it. You're so popular. You're so pretty. You're so strong. You're, so, you're amazing. You're so smart. Do you see these names that our culture puts on us? You're so successful. What does successful even mean today? You got a bank account? See, our culture wants to put these new names on us. They were being reminded daily by the change of their names from Yahweh, the God who is and who was and who will always be, to several Babylonian gods. The Babylonian gods were the sun, the moon, the oceans, and education. That's the, you know, it's not about the God who is, who was, and who will always be. It's about the sun and the moon and the stars and the ocean and education and, and the harvest. They, they just change their names up. They're trying to change their loyalties. They're trying to change their identity and they're trying to ultimately change their worship. Forget about that one God and the faith of your youth, the traditions of your homeland. Conform to the ways and the numerous gods of Babylon. There is no longer one God. He doesn't exist. Remember, he let you down. That's why you're here anyway. Wow. He's got a good point. Mm-mm. No. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah proved to us in chapter 3. Now, I'll tell you who we're going to serve. And then they say this to the king. And I'll tell you what, if he doesn't save us, I'll tell you one thing that's never going to happen. We ain't ever going to bow down to your statue. Oh, if you get a chance to read Daniel 1, 2, and 3, you will not be disappointed. We watch for these beautiful details, and we can see them throughout chapter 3. How Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah refuse to conform or deny their faith. They're commanded to bow down to this, this idol of Babylon and bring allegiance to the king who is treated like a god. And this is where you see their true loyalty. Their true loyalty, even though they're functioning in the government of Babylon, they're critical to Babylon's idolatry of power, to its injustice, to its arrogance. And they do it, listen to this, and you'll read it, they do it submissively by laying down their lives. Okay, we're not gonna bow down to that God. But the problem I always had in that story is in chapter three, it says, everybody bowed down. Well, there were thousands of exiles. Where were the rest of the Israelite exiles? If there were three guys standing up, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, where were the rest of the exiles? Sucking dust. They were all bowing down to this Babylonian God. But these three said, no, not going to happen. And so they lay down their lives. And you know what? God vindicates them as well as he vindicates Daniel. You know the story. You've heard the story. Daniel in the lion's den. He's in his 80s at the time. They threw this old man into a lion's den. He'd served several kings. And, and it's like, yep, yeah, we're going to toss him in there. Let him be eaten alive. God vindicates him, submissively laying down his life. I have to pray to my God. I know this is what I do every time. During the day, I have these times where I have set aside that I pray to God. And they say, you can't do that anymore. And sure enough, they catch him breaking the law. And he says, okay. And they lower him into a lion's den. There's no story, there's no story of kicking and screaming, no, don't do this, don't do this to me. They lower him down in this lion's den and God saves him. They're serving Babylon 
and they're seeking its well-being, but their loyalty, beloved, hear this, was always to God. And you see it throughout this, this book of Daniel. The way of the exile, would you fill this in, please? Is a combination of loyalty and also subversion or what I'll call non-conformity. I don't line up. I don't align to the culture. I am, here's the phrase we use, walking to the beat of a different drum. Even though Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah are still exiles, they long to go home. That's what they want to do. In fact, I'll tell you what, Daniel brings a prophecy. He believed that God was going to send a king, a ruler, to bring down Babylon, right? and create a true kingdom of peace. You read about the prophecy. And as I read it, I, it sounds like Daniel's thinking, this is gonna happen in my lifetime. But Daniel receives another dream where God reveals to them that after Babylon, there's gonna come another kingdom that's gonna conquer that one. And after that one's gonna have another kingdom and then another kingdom and another king. And he gives him a vision of a, of a statue. And you can get into it. I'm not gonna give it all away today. And it happened Babylon fell, and then Babylon's successors came in, and Daniel maintained the mindset of an, ag- an exile. He is waiting and longing for his home, but he's like, here's where I'm at, and here's where I have to serve. He continues the same practice of loyalty and subversion to any of the new Babylonians that came over him. They were called the, the, the Persians and the Medes, right? Cyrus comes in, different kings that he's written, and they go, man, that guy's smart. Let's keep him in the government, even though he's loyal to his God. Well, that storyline continues. That narrative continues right up to the Gospels where Jesus enters in, and the empire of his day was Rome, ruled by Caesar. The Jews are still being ruled just in their own land now. Before they were in Babylon being ruled by these oppressive countries. Now they're in Israel being ruled by somebody. And some of the Israelites wanted to resist. Others just gave in to the Roman oppression. Well, you know, let's, when in Rome, you know the phrase. That's where it comes from. When in Rome, do as the Romans. Some people are like, absolutely not. We're not going to do this. And so they rise up and there's executions. And thus, we know about crucifixions. Jesus right? And it's this mix, this mix that happens as Jesus carries out the same subversive kind of lifestyle, the same kind of loyalty that Daniel was carrying out. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22. Watch this. Here's the words of Jesus. He says this, you know what? It's fine. Go ahead. Pay your taxes to Caesar. His picture's on the coins. Give him back what belongs to him. Those are his coins. They don't belong to me. I don't want those coins. But then he follows it up. Check it out. He follows it up with this. Don't mistake Caesar for God. Essentially, Jesus is saying, God's the one who deserves our total life and allegiance. You see, it's the same mix of loyalty and subversion that Jesus teaches his followers. He, he, he puts it this way. Don't just love your enemies, bless your enemies. Wait, what? It's the same instruction. Jesus picks it up right out of Daniel, right out of Jeremiah. He says, bless your enemies. Wait, what? Yeah, if they ask you for your coat, give them your shirt too. If they ask you to walk a mile, do two. Wait, what? 
and he got arrested for speaking out against corrupt religious leaders in Jerusalem. And then he critiques Rome's leaders and their idolatry and power. And you know why he got crucified? That kind of subversion, not bowing down to the religious structures or the government structures of his day. That happens, but I want you to hear, just like Daniel and just like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the book of Daniel, right? God vindicates him. God raises Jesus from the dead. He raises him back to life as the true king of the nations. That's the king that Daniel was hoping for. And Jesus promised that one day his kingdom's gonna prevail. So until then, as Jesus' followers, you can fill this in, we're living in a type of exile. A type is a foreshadow. It's kind of like, this is like that. You saw it in the Old Testament and then it happens in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, a type is when Moses lifted up a serpent on a stick, right? And the serpent was dangerous, right? Well, then Jesus was lifted up on a stick. See, that's a type. And that's why Peter calls the followers of Jesus foreigners and exiles. Because what we saw in the Old Testament is taking place in the New Testament and beloved in this present Testament as well. Jesus is telling people, hey, you respect the authorities of whatever place you happen to live in. You honor, you honor them, you honor people. Peter lays it all out for us. And then he reminds us, listen, that all of this, even as great as it is, this, the, the infrastructure of the United States, I love the United States. We're not so united these days, but we are the states of America. But I love the United States. I love what, what has been done here. It's an amazing country, but this is not my home. And Peter lays that out. He says, you're foreigners there, man. This is temporary. You're not here. You're not here to stay. We're all still living in Babylon. Well, not Babylon because Babylon doesn't exist anymore, right? Or, or does it? I, I hope you're seeing the connections as you realize, oh, right, loyalties and you have to pledge allegiance and these kinds of things. See, in the Bible, Watch this, and you can fill this in for yourselves. Babylon is the symbol that describes the institutions, the human institutions that demand allegiance. And I would say to its numerous redefinitions of good and evil. I see it in the paper all the time. I see it in the news. They're calling what is evil good and what is good evil. They're calling what is dark light and what is light dark. And I go, what the heck's going on? Oh, right. I live in Babylon. Are you getting the parallels? We all live and we all work in Babylon. So how do we seek the well-being of Babylon while maintaining allegiance and our loyalty to someone, capital S, greater? How do, how do I do that? How do I live here as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as God's redeemed children, as disciples, not just believers, People who have Jesus not just living in them, but living through them. How do we do it? We have to live in the tension between loyalty and subversion. And that, beloved, is the way of the exile. That's how it happens. We're holding fast to the faithfulness of the kingdom while participating in the function of the government. I vote. I want you to vote here for a season as foreigners.
as exiles, as sojourners, just passing through. But I'm going home. One day, my king is coming back. And when he comes back to take me home to a new Jerusalem... <laughs>